0: We are super excited, pun intended, to welcome our newest sponsor, Supergirl. That's S-O-U-P-E-R-G-I-R-L. Supergirl is a kosher women-founded food delivery business. All of their soups are delicious, plant-based, and available for delivery throughout the U.S. except Alaska and Hawaii. Sorry to our Alaskan and Hawaiian listeners. Hopefully that will be delivered to you soon. In the meantime, those of you who want to try Supergirl, they have kindly offered our listeners a 20% discount. Just enter the code RUN20 at checkout to receive 20% off your subscription. I've been a Supergirl subscriber for a number of years. And what's really nice is that you can adjust your subscription depending on what's going on during the week. There's no obligation. You're not locked in for months or a year or anything like that. My favorite soups during the summer are the gazpachos. They are delicious and uh, I just love their soups. They're healthy, plant based, kosher, and it's really nice to know you're supporting a local business that ships nationwide. So give Supergirl a try. You won't regret it. And thanks so much to Supergirl for sponsoring our podcast.
1: While we pay a lot of attention to the shoes that we wear during our runs, what we put on our feet after our runs is just as important. That's why we love UFO's recovery shoes. As a recovery product, Ufos absorb 37% more impact than traditional footwear, which helps your feet, your ankles, your hips, and lower back recover faster. So while slipping into your favorite pair of Ufos after a hard workout gives you that ooh and ah feeling, you can wear them all day long. We wear ours around the house, while working from home at our stand-up desk, or even out and about running errands. Check out the Ufos line at www.ufos, O-O-F-O-S.com.
0: Hey, hey Lisa. <laughs>
1: Jinx. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. How are you? What's going on with you? We both um were on vacation last week and sorry everyone, that's why we didn't have an episode out, but we yeah. both uh needed some time off. How was your vacation, Lisa?
1: It was great. We were at the beach on the eastern shore of um Delaware, which is not too far from us, and um, just a much needed escape. You know, it's not too far away, but it feels like worlds away. So it, it was great. Um, you know, just had a really good time. Um, got in a little running and like my favorite happy place to run. Um, so it was good. Went by too quickly as it always does, but it's nice to be home and back back here. So. And how about you? You actually, I'm a little jealous of you where you were. Tell us about oh, that. Oh, I
0: love the beach more than where I was, but I was pleasantly surprised as to how relaxing it was. I actually, while you were at the beach relaxing, I was in Boston. Um, I have family there and we also are huge Billy Joel fans, so we had tickets already from last year and so we redeemed those and went to Fenway and saw our first concert since um, like I think January, 2020. And wow, he did not disappoint off topic a little bit, but for anyone who's a Billy Joel fan, he's still upright and moving guys. His voice is great. And if you have a chance to see him, he still sounds wonderful. And he kept saying, welcome back Fenway. Thank you so much for waiting for me because people have of course been waiting for like a year and a half to see him, but it was great. And um, what I really enjoyed about Boston specifically was I've never, even though I've run Boston 10 times and um been there 11 for the marathon because of course in 2019 i did not run but spectated thanks to my uh best spectator
2: ever it was so fun i really had fun
0: spectating you lisa
2: it was really fun
0: (laughs) and so i've never really run in boston besides the marathon or like a shakeout and my gosh running along the charles river is so fun it was a beautiful day and it was just one of those runs where everything just kind of clicked and i loved people watching there and i went like up and down the esplanade it was it was so awesome and um we did some whale watching near cape cod and um just ran all around the city walked all around the city and i felt like i have a new appreciation for boston while i feel like you and i know the city like the back of our hands we know it through the lens of a marathoner and being there as just a you know a traveler was really fun and interesting and and i very much enjoyed it so it was super fun and um and you even went to also, the finish
1: line you sent me a picture from the finish line oh yeah which is me
0: the yes, thank you for the reminder. Um, for those running this fall, the finish line is ready and waiting for us, and the city is ready and waiting for us. Um, by virtue of running Boston, um, running around Boston, and seeing how many runners were out and about, coupled with going to an outdoor concert with lots and lots of people in the city of Boston, I just felt confident that Boston is ready to welcome the marathoners with open arms. Now, certainly things can change. I, I don't want to be too confident. We've all been through this rodeo. However, I just felt like the city is so eager to do whatever it can to bring life back. And so um, they believe in vaccinations. You know, it's, it's definitely a place that that believes in masking when necessary, but it's definitely a place when you're outside and you're in an environment where um, the evidence supports that COVID does not spread when you're doing outdoor activities. Um, yeah, I think I think the marathon can happen. Now we have we were talking offline, you and I, Lisa, about some things that probably would need to take place based on the latest news with respect to the Delta variant. So what are your some some of your thoughts? with respect to boston and what you think is going to happen in terms of logistics
1: yeah not just boston but i think you know a lot of people are starting to question the fall races and getting a little bit nervous with um new restrictions that are going back into place i know um, philadelphia this week put in to place a new uh, indoor mass restriction but also restrictions on um any unseated thousand person or more outdoor events so i um you know, a sports game where you're in a stadium and you're seated would not would not apply there. But if you are not seated, um, that there is a masking requirement. And so I know that a lot of the races that are taking place in Philly this fall communicated to their runners this week of like, we are trying to figure out what that means for our race and how to make our race happen. So I think that there may be some modifications that have to be put in place. Um, a couple of thoughts on that. First is, you know, there seem to be ways to work within those uh restrictions. So if, if there are requirements for masking um maybe uh, oh, for a thousand or more people, maybe races start in smaller waves or um you know maybe there are exceptions for when you're you're exerting effort when you're doing a physical activity. We'll have to see. And my other thought too though is that things change pretty rapidly. I mean we went from not being masked indoors even uh you know than the last month to going back to masks indoors. So if you look internationally right now it looks like the trends are coming back down the numbers are coming back down it's spiked and then it's coming back down so we may be back in lower numbers in another month as we get closer to race days but um i do think it's kind of throwing um you know i don't know why maybe maybe i'm naive but in my head i just thought here we go we're going back to racing and we're good and people are back you know people are vaccinated we're in a good place and all of a sudden like you know back up a little bit we may need to have some restrictions put put back in place. So in terms of Boston specifically I think that they're you know maybe I'm, I'm sure the BAA is still um considering and and you know watching what, what's happening but um you know the expo is one example I can think of I know they're planning to have the expo but um but if numbers are the way they are and the delta variant continues to to spread there may need to be uh, modifications to the expo the buses on the way to to hopkinton that you know i don't know what's going to happen with that but um you know, I, i'm hopeful that the races are still going to take place and just that there may be um some some precautions that need to be put into place if, if numbers stay the way they are right now i agree
0: when you mentioned the expo my thought just kind of picturing it is i feel like a, a great solution would be just to set up outdoor packet pickup bid pickup just as they would inside when you first get to the expo in Boston, you go straight upstairs, you head over, it's alphabetical, it's super organized. Just set it up out in Boston Commons. Have people go there a few days before if it's raining, set up tents, have everybody go to the Commons. There's tons of space, pick up your packets. And then on race morning, uh, I'm sure there will be a requirement on the buses that people must be masked, just like on airplanes when um, riding the buses out to Hopkinton. So um, those are sort of my two logistical thoughts with respect to being able to put on the race um, while being mindful of this uh, Delta variant situation.
1: I think it'll be interesting to see too if there, if you know the Expo does take place in the Heinz Convention Center like normal and um, how many people actually go to the Expo I, mean, I think people will go in quickly to get their bib and, and, and leave but a lot of people may not feel comfortable being there and we know over the years it's been really interesting I remember you know 20 years ago the Expo was not super crowded it was big but it was not you know it wasn't crazy and over the years it's gotten every year we go we was remarking how much more crowded or how much more hectic the the expo has gotten i mean there are times now when we've gone in recent years where you can hardly even move through the aisles because it's so packed and it's gotten worse every year and so i i can't imagine people being comfortable with that this year so even if it does take place in the heinz Convention Center, i think it'll look a lot different and people be in and out really quickly to get their bibs and again it, it, it you know things could look totally different in another month or you know in six seven weeks we could numbers could be low again, vaccinations could be up, and things could be settling again, and people may be comfortable again, but I can't imagine it looking like it's looked in the past.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. As you mentioned that, I'm thinking about vendors, too. There's probably a lot of vendors that really don't want to pay a lot of money to be at the expo when, you know, number one, their safety could be compromised, but number two, and most relevantly to these vendors, how many people are actually going to visit their booths, and it's so expensive, so I don't know what's going to happen with that expo, but I would be Personally, very surprised if there was an expo that looked anything like past expos. So, again, something different about this fall Boston. It will definitely be a unique experience. I think we'll all be super excited to be there and we'll just kind of look toward 2022 as to um, putting back in place many of the traditions we're more familiar with. To that end, though, I was really encouraged when I was watching the Olympic marathon in Sapporo. I loved watching spectators along the marathon route. It, it was so nice because that's really was the only event where there could be tons of spectators. Now it wasn't crowded, crowded, but it was crowded enough. And I just thought, huh, this is great. And this is how Boston can be. And, and any fall marathon, spectator, spectators want to be there and runners want them there. So I hope I hope similarly at, in all these fall races, people come out and spectate like they did in Sapporo. And speaking of Sapporo, oh my gosh, okay. Let's talk about the women's race first. You watch. Yeah.
1: So the interesting thing was we were driving back from the beach at five, six o'clock, seven o'clock on uh, Friday, which is when the race was taking place. And I so wanted to stay and watch it, but we had to get home. So I had friends and people calling me and giving me kind of like lifetime updates of what was happening. So I did not get to actually watch the, I knew what had happened, but I did not actually get to watch. I, I waited till I got home and watched a recording of, of, the finish um, and some of the cover, a lot of the coverage when I got home. So it was a little frustrating to be on the road and kind of waiting to hear updates and trying to, you know, not get distracted while I'm driving and asking my kids to like read, read updates or people to call me with updates. So um, uh, it was, uh, so that, that's how I kind of watched it. And then when I got home, I gorged on watching coverage, the recordings and coverage of it. So, uh, but it was really, it was, got me really excited about racing. And like you said, not only, you know, just watching spectators and just watching the marathon. I think it's um, one of the only, at least for me personally, and I think for a lot of people, the competitions that we watch that we can relate to. Like I can watch gymnastics and I think it's amazing, but I can't relate to how those gymnasts feel or what they're feeling when they're waiting to start or while they're doing their routine. Um, But I think we can all relate to what those, Marathoners were feeling. And for both the men's and the women's races, the temperatures were really hot and it was really humid. And um, they even moved the race start, you know, earlier to to try to escape some of that. But you could see, I know in watching the women's race, you could see them shade hunting, just like we do, you know, kind of going side to side of the roads. So they were um, going through the shade. And, um, you know, so it's, it's, to me, it's, um, it's so relatable, which I think is, I think probably for all of us really fun to watch is that even though they're moving a lot faster than most of us, all of the um, feelings that they're going through and, and their experiences in that, in, in that marathon, we can relate to.
0: Yeah, I loved, um, Molly Seidel posted on her Strava, her, her run, it, it said something like morning run in sepro initially, which is super funny. And her morning run in Sopro um, was 20, I believe it was 26.7 miles. So she had to choose between tangents or shade. And she clearly chose shade, which was really smart. But I so admire what she did. I know this has been talked about ad nauseum, but we're going to repeat it on our podcast. She went out there and ran her very first marathon to trials. Ran our second one in London, and then ran a gutsy, hot marathon with almost the exact same time as her first marathon, and obviously her PR because it was her first marathon, and crushed it, which shows that how much fitness she gained that she was able to um, run the same exact time in much worse conditions. But the way she just held on, and you know, for a while she was competing for between third and fourth with um an israeli runner named lona shemtai Shemte, and she's an amazing runner too and i don't know why NBC didn't really show why she dropped back i couldn't figure I'll it tell
1: out you, did you did you uh, did you read i actually yes. I, well, maybe, so, yeah go ahead
0: <laughs> yeah yeah so they finally she shared it she yes. had period cramps
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah <laughs> poor girl
1: yeah we can all relate to that too. <laughs> yeah, no so, yeah, no kidding. So and she um, ended up, I think in like place or I forget what it was. It was, she was, you know, obviously much toward the back, which that's, that's, uh, um, that's gotta be really, uh, devastating, but she came out of it with such a good attitude, but yeah, she, right. But, but Molly was in there, like you said, kind of in, in fourth place for, for a while.
0: Yeah. And, and, Okay, so back to the Israeli running really quickly. I love that she came out and was like, yeah, I had period cramps, and everyone needs to understand that this is what women go through. And I thought, damn it, can't someone make a freaking product that works? I mean, you know, you really, I mean, Advil, Aleve works, but you can't really take that while you're running the speeds that she's running. And it was, of course, it sounds like they were debilitating cramps. It's not like she could pop a bunch of Advil before her race. Um, And it sounds like they came on pretty strong. It's like, can't we just troubleshoot this and figure this out? But Mm just bad timing, bad luck, but hopefully um, her story and the fact that she's willing to share it will will at least put people on notice with respect to, once again, a reminder what women go through. And then similarly, um, the other two American runners, I mean, they were amazing. And one of whom had a baby in between the trials and the marathon, and she was having some hip pain and, oh my gosh, I felt so badly for her. She had worked like everyone else, her tail off and she was very open about it. I was having some hip pain and I, I, I couldn't finish. And it's, it's not like she DNF'd because she didn't have the will. She just was in a lot of pain. And then um, Sally had a great race, but um, you know, I think she was 17th, which is phenomenal. So I mean, the Americans did really well. And um, I'm just, I'm just super in awe of Molly and everything she went through from battling an eating disorder to a pelvic fracture to um, OCD, being so open about it, almost dropping out of running altogether, finding a coach that basically is her friend and trusting him. And together they were able to forge this path. So I think she also shows all of us that there's more than one way to do something. And just because it hasn't been done a certain way before, that doesn't mean it won't work. And what what a gutsy race and a gutsy road to uh, to that race. So super proud of her. And then men's race. You want to talk about that because that was amazing
2: too.
1: Yeah, that was interesting. You know, it's so funny. It was filled with a lot of drama. I felt. <laughs> some drama in the men's race. Um, so, um, yeah, no, you know, another example. Again, another hot day. Another example of some some gutsy performances, and also, um, you know, just um, some runners who are who are not invincible, but you know, the greatest of all time. So it, it was it was another um, you know another really amazing race to watch.
0: Yeah, when Kipchoge was out front and he was kind of leading this the pack, and Galen Rep was really close to him I was watching that and I was thinking, I hate it when people do that to me in a race and I know that it's you know you can draft and that's a really good strategy and we've talked about that a lot on our podcast but when someone is drafting off of you and there is no draft because there was no way there was a draft
1: <laughs> at that race it wasn't drafting it just you know I don't know if that <laughs> people can probably relate to this but when you're in a race and you know somebody's right over your shoulder the whole time and they're not making oh. them- they're not like coming up next to you or going ahead of you. They're just right there on your shoulder and you just know that they're there and you're waiting for them to either come up or pass you or something, but they're not and they're just right there. Like <laughs> that is, I've experienced that before. And it is so annoying because you know, you usually so happens, you turn the corner to the finish line and then, then they sprint ahead of you. Um, and it's just, I don't know, just, it just seems like bad um sportsmanship to me. So yeah, so I had watched that um replay of that trying to see if I could figure out what they were saying to each other because I was even looking on like social media for. You know, maybe somebody had had the inside scoop on what was going on there, but it sounds like uh, the exchange may have been something like, uh, "Hey, are you gonna like? <laughs> are you gonna go ahead? Are you gonna say like, What are you? What are you doing? You know,' either 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 make a move or or I'm I'm going away." And I just thought it was great that Kipchoge just was like, "I'm gone. I'm out of here," and and he never looked back.
0: He sure did. So in a way, Galen Rupp did him a favor. And, and it, it's our understanding that this, a similar situation also happened in 2016 with Meb. So you've got two of like the nicest people in the world, nicest runners in the world, Meb and Kipchoge, who both were annoyed by Galen Rupp. So maybe someone needs to uh, talk to Galen about how to how to etiquette when running in groups and when racing in groups. And I know he trains alone, so maybe he just doesn't get it. I don't know, but it maybe not really like him that much, so. Yeah,
1: and then there was a the whole um <laughs> thing with the um, French runner who came through the water table, and um the, like kind of knocked down all the water bottles. <laughs> the, what a day! Came up, yeah. You know, just like you know. Then there were some people like, well, he just couldn't grab the water. I said, nobody else. If you look at the footage, like nobody else had a problem grab. And we've all had to grab a water bottle off a table. Maybe you knock one other down when you go to grab it. This was like a dominoes effect. Like he literally took his hand and went all the way down. I thought. What is with these guys? Like there was, there was no drama in the women's in the women's race. These guys were they were pretty they were pretty brutal, which uh, isn't really the the um I don't know to me the spirit of the marathon. <laughs> but but yeah, so that's what I I took away most from from the men's race was sort of the the drama that was going on. I was trying to <laughs> out, I was trying to look a little closer and figure out like what is really going on. What are they saying to each other? Um, but, Did yeah. you notice how
0: effortlessly Kipchoge looked when he was. Uh, what was he like a minute and 28 ahead of um, yes. the second place runner and I mean the way he was just running in so he looked I know it was so hard but he looked like it was just a casual jaunt in the park it was really unbelievable
1: yeah especially in that heat so.
0: yeah for sure very, so very before entire...
1: we oh, go ahead.
0: <laughs> yeah for sure so before we go on to talk about our guest um, we had some sad news that we we shared it on our Facebook page and Um, someone we really admire passed away a a few weeks ago. And I know Lisa, you have a little bit more of a connection to her because you were kind of corresponding with her to get her on our podcast. So you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. Um, Gloria Raddy was, uh, you know, kind of a woman pioneer with the, with the BAA and the Boston marathon. And we, we saw her talk on a panel of women. Um, it was, I think, what was it called? Like pioneering women of the Boston Marathon with Catherine Switzer and um, some of the other women uh, that really have been at the forefront of the Boston Marathon. And not only the Boston Marathon, but in in getting women equal equal billing, equal treatment, equal pay at the Boston Marathon. And really that all started with Gloria Raddy. And she came into the BAA very early on in her life and career with her husband. And she kind of was like the timing person. She helped him with timing. And um, she was one of the first to really um, insist on uh, timing and making sure that the women were timed appropriately because for a long time, Um, There was confusion when people crossed the finish, the women crossed the finish line. Was that a man? Was that a woman? And they may not get credit. It was, I guess, I guess, you know, we didn't have bib, we didn't have chips. And it was a much more complicated timing, but she really um, ended up sitting out on the course and and tracking where the women were. And over the years was really um, the pioneer in um, making sure the women were included, were recognized. And uh, in the course of that, really, from what we have understood and, uh, you know, what we've learned through talking not only to her, but to um, the women of the Boston Marathon, she put us in touch with, was how integral she was to creating that community. And um, you know, we did. We reached out to her. Uh, I don't know. Now it's probably before during COVID. I think, or maybe the beginning of COVID, and said, um, you know, we wanted to interview her on our podcast. And she said, poo poo, don't interview me. Don't interview me. Interview all the wonderful women who, you know, kind of set the set the path for women to come." And she put us in touch with personally. Put us in touch with. Um, Sarah Mae Berman and all of our women that we had on on the podcast that were our early um, Bobby Gibb, you know, all of our women that we've had on that were early runners, she put us in touch with them. And as soon as we touched base with them and said um, that Gloria Raddy had given us their contact information, they responded right away. She, she clearly uh, commanded a lot of respect and um, and they had told us stories about her and, and really the community that she created. So, um, she was, she was fabulous and we had just been in touch with her, not, not too terribly long ago. And, uh, so that news was, was really sad. She was, she was quite a force to be reckoned with.
0: For sure. Yeah. And she worked for the CIA, which is super cool.
1: Yeah, she's, she's, she's a cool lady. So, but speaking of, you know, women of the Boston Marathon, um, uh, you know, we, uh, have delighted to have this week on our podcast somebody who we probably should have had on a long time ago as we've had on so many pioneering women. Um, so are uh, you want to talk about our guests that we have on that we have on today?
0: Sure. so today's guest is the amazing Lisa Rainsberger. Lisa was the uh, second American winner of the Boston Marathon. First of course is Joan Benoit Samuelson, then Lisa who won the Boston Marathon in 1985. And then des so lisa was super excited when des won and 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 was able to follow in her footsteps it certainly took us a little a little while longer than the time between her and joan benoit samuelson but wow um, meeting lisa and talking with her we both our jaws were just i think for a lot of the interview, our jaws were just open on the floor because she is just such a force and such an impressive woman. And while we don't want to give away her whole biography, we we should introduce her properly because it could take an entire episode to talk about all of her accomplishments, but we'll we'll highlight some of them. Um, So first of all, Lisa started out as a swimmer. Um, She qualified in 1980 for the US Olympic swimming trials. However, the United States boycotted the 1980 Olympics, and Lisa was unable to compete. And she found running as a result. And Lisa not only found running, joined the University of Michigan cross-country team. And in 1984, 19, 1988, in 1992, and in 1996, she finished fourth in the U.S. Olympic trials. Um, she was an alternate for four different Olympics. Now, for some people, that would be frustrating. I'm sure it was for Lisa, too. But, Lisa, as she has done all of her life, including the first example in 1980, is an expert at pivoting before that word was trendy due to COVID. And she talks with us in this interview about her life story. Um, she talks a lot about her Boston wind and just about how she was able to accomplish a lot through her setbacks. She also tells a great story um, about our most frequent podcast guest, Dave McGillivray. And she just is amazing. So I'm going to rattle off a few of her accomplishments. There are so many, but I'm just going to rattle off some. So between 1980 and 1984, she's the University of Michigan three-sport NCAA All-American in swimming cross-country track and field. She was also the cross-country team captain. In 1984, she was a US Olympic marathon team alternate. She also, in 1984, won the Montreal Marathon in 1985 she won the boston marathon in 1986 87 and 89 she was a 10 mile champion in 1988 she was again the u.s olympic marathon team alternate fourth place in 1988 she also was um competed in the u.s olympic track and field trials 10k then she was she didn't go to the olympics in 1988 so instead she ran the chicago marathon and she won it in 1988 and 1989 also in 1988 in 1989 and 1990, she was the Cherry Blossom 10 Mile of Champion with a PR of 5280. And I should say her marathon PR, I believe, is 22815 in Chicago. Um, she also set the American record 15K in 1989. She won a bunch of runners Runner of the Year awards um, between US <laughs> Track and Field and Runner's World. Um, yeah, Oh, and then she won the uh, Sapporo Japan Half Marathon Championship in 1990. And then in 1992, she went back to the Olympic trials and once again was fourth as the U.S. Olympic marathon team alternate. But instead of going Olympics in 1993, she went ahead and won the Twin Cities marathon and she was a the champion there. Uh, I could just go on and on. And then she talks about how she picked up triathlon and how that worked out for her. But what is also really interesting about Lisa is that in 2006 and currently she is the founder and director of a wonderful running club out in Colorado called Coca Pelle Kids Trail Running. And so she talks a lot about her coaching philosophy and why she created this program for kids. And we were so honored to have Lisa on our podcast and not to take away from Lisa, but her daughter, Katie Rainsberger just joined Team Boss. She's coached now by Team Boss Hard after performing amazingly well in the steeplechase event at the U.S. Olympic trials. So how about that?
1: <laughs> that for a life? That's pretty, I just, I find it so um, really, uh, it's admirable how, you know, like you said, so many times, so, so many of what, so much of what she's experiences she had could have um, discouraged her or she could have seen it as a setback. And instead she just found something else to pursue and pursued it like to the nth degree. So, you know, when swimming going, she wasn't able to go to the Olympics for swimming. So it go to the Olympics for marathon I'm gonna try to go to the Olympics for marathon. When that didn't work out, she decided she's going to go run Boston and win, and she won Boston. And, um, you know, then eventually, like you said, she uh, decided to take up triathlon and, um, and, and everything she's done. And even now, uh, you know, I think take away from our discussion with her, I just really admire her as I'm not only an athlete, which obviously she's, you know, from what you just rattled off, lots of of things to admire about her, Um, but also as a mom and as a coach, And, and especially a mom is the mom of an athlete. And I think she has a really, a lot of really, really great advice. And some, what I took away from our conversation with her, the most meaningful was the advice she has to parents of teen athletes. So really enjoyed talking to her. I feel like we could have talked to her for hours. And I, our, our goal now actually is to get her back to Boston. You know, she'll talk about this on the podcast, but she was, you know, her uh, 2020 would have been her 35 year anniversary of her win at Boston and or 2020, yeah, 2020, right, would have been the 35-year um, anniversary, and um, she would have been back in Boston to run that anniversary year, and then obviously it didn't happen, uh, and she trained twice for Boston, like a lot of us did, um, and, uh, and, you know, just decided that not, not going to keep training for Bostons that we don't know are going to happen. And um, we, we'd like to put a push out to the BA to invite her to come back and have her anniversary year whenever we're back in, in Boston, whether that's uh, this fall or she comes back next April, but um, I'd love to see her there.
0: Amen. So everyone listening after this podcast is over, if you have any ideas on how we can make that happen in an organized fashion, let us know. We'll spearhead the movement to get Lisa Rainsberger back to Boston and honored. So Lisa, I hope that you have a great week.
1: Thanks, Julie. You too. Bye. Bye. We wanted to take a quick break from the podcast to thank our friends at RNJ Sports for their support. RNJ is our go-to expert on all things running gear related particularly running shoes. If you've struggled with finding the right shoes, the staff at RNJ can help solve just about any problem or issue. As a small locally owned business, RNJ is heavily involved in and supportive of the local running community. They get runners. They are runners. RNJ has been an enthusiastic supporter of our podcast and our training programs including our Montgomery County Public Schools program. We are so appreciative of their support. Check them out online at R-N-J, that's R-N-J-sports.com.
0: Lisa Rainsberger, welcome to the Run Farther and Faster podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us today. And for those who may not know who you are, if you wouldn't mind indulging us and giving us a bit of background about you, including your, um, how you started running and your collegiate career and what led you from becoming um, a swimmer to then becoming a runner? You bet. How much time do we have?
2: (laughs) (laughs) All the time you need. Okay, great. Well, okay, grew up, um, parents, you know, were immigrants. They came to America, raised their kids and put us into sports and really emphasized education. So me growing up, I knew I was gonna be in some type of athletics, I knew that, you know, education was, you know, a huge family priority. And so I started swimming as a young girl. I was age five when they, you know, threw me in the swimming pool and swam competitively on, you know, the teams in Battle Creek, Michigan and Kalamazoo, Michigan, and just loved it, just loved it. And, you know, I was on my way to um, Michigan on a swimming scholarship, but my senior year in high school, I wanted to earn another varsity letter and so i was always swimming and you know always sacrificing you know being able to participate in other things and so i went up to the high school um track coach and said this was like two-thirds of the way through the season it was like almost over and i said i just got back from you know swimming nationals and i know it's late but is there any way i could just come out for the rest of the season and run and he was like kind of perturbed he was like annoyed And he goes, sure, go run two miles. And so I ran the two miles and I come back to him and he's got this like really chagrin look on his face. And and I said, well, what do you think? He goes, well, since you just broke the school record, I think you'll do. So (laughs) he let me run three races. I ran like a little track meet, invitational, I ran regionals, and then I went to the state meet for Colorado, or excuse me, for Michigan. And that was it. I ran three races in high school and I got my letter, and I went off the next fall to Michigan and, and joined the swimming team. And things were going great. You know, I qualified that year for the Olympic trials and I was in the pool in January, swimming against, it was an international swimming meet. I was in the pool with Russians and Germans and, you know, the world, when Jimmy Carter announced the Olympic boycott. And that weekend, I was like, well, wait a minute, I can swim against them now, but I can't swim against them during the Olympics. So, you know, I, I was just very, you know, I was young, barely old enough to vote and just totally disillusioned by this decision from our president. And I decided to take an eight credit biology course that in geology course that Michigan had in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. I'm like, I'm getting rid of my swimsuit. I am not gonna be in the pool. I am so frustrated. And I don't wanna read about everyone else in the world getting to go to the Olympics. So it was more or less, you know, a way for me to seclude myself from the pain and the sadness of not going. And about three weeks in I'm like, the jeans aren't fitting anymore. and like, I discovered beer and boys and you know, <laughs> yeah, I needed to do something. So. I would get up early in the morning around 6:30 and go for a run. And there a mile and a half was from our cabins to the main road. It was a mile and a half. And there was this beautiful, like abandoned, like log cabin, and there were wild horses. They were literally wild horses. And I thought, I'm gonna make it to the cabin. So I worked really hard to make it to the cabin and then I would run back so i got to the point where i could run three miles and then three miles wasn't enough i made it five miles and then five miles became eight miles and so that summer i just fell in love with running you know just the way it made me feel and the serenity of it and i came back to start my sophomore year at michigan on my full swimming scholarship and i just couldn't do it i my roommate was on the cross-country team and she says you're a good runner So I went up to the you know red simmons was his name and he's i asked him if i could could walk on and he goes absolutely so i turned in a full ride scholarship i went and got a pell grant a student loan and a work-study job and then i told my parents and so i self-funded that next year at michigan which wasn't cheap i worked my butt off i picked strawberries i did odd jobs and by the end of that year I was an all-American and I got my full scholarship back again. And wow, so, what was
0: just curious, what was your parents' reaction after they um, raised you as a swimmer when you went to them and said I'm quitting swimming and I'm going to go for a, a, a track and cross country and and forego yeah. my scholarship.
2: So that's that's a good question because here's my father. He goes, "I don't understand." He had a very thick accent. You Gun goes off, you run into the woods, 20 minutes later, you come back. I don't understand cross And so he was just like, my mom said he cried. He had this big old, you know, my dad was six, five, big guy. You know, he was in construction, you know, a laborer. His hands were a mess. And he was just the biggest teddy bear ever. And yet he had this big old tear, she said, when he found out that I had left swimming. And I said, just guys, just be patient, just wait till track season, because you can use your bleacher seat during track season. Track season and You can watch the entire race. And so sure enough, you know, track season, he was just so excited because he could see the whole thing. He could see his baby and, and um, cheer and, you know, just be super proud. So, um, but it's so funny. He did not understand cross country. Gun goes off, you disappear, disappeared and come back. You know, <laughs> like, yep, that's it, dad. So he, my parents were big supporters and fans, and it was hard for them at first, but eventually they, they just totally wrapped their, their arms around me And they were in the stadium when I won Boston, so at the finish line in the bleachers, and, um, you know, it was just a precious moment that I'll never forget.
1: That's amazing. Now, Lisa, you, you downplayed, you know, your are swimming, you kind of mentioned that you, you know, you went to Michigan and then, oh, you qualified for the Olympics. I now mean, that that's a really big you new know, swimming was obviously a big part of your life. You were extremely talented and dedicated to it. Did you feel like you, you transferred the, that, that focus and dedication from the swimming to the running with a new sense of you know purpose that you felt like you had lost through swimming?
2: That's a really good question. It took a while, you know, because I had to like, transformed my thought process in my, my body, my physique. I was a big girl, I was 156 pounds and, you know, shoulders out to here. And, you know, whenever they had uniform order orders, you know, they, I had small hips, so they just order me a, you know, like a smaller medium. I'm like, no, 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 I need a larger, and extra large uniform because my shoulders, and they're still pretty broad, but I would have, I would have nightmares where I would be standing on the starting blocks of the swim meet and the gun would go off and I would jump in the pool and I would start running. So there were all these confusion dreams that I would have for the longest time that I was in the wrong sport. And, you know, I, it wasn't, you know, what happened was is red Simmons was the coach and he just believed in me and he was kind and he was patient and he never, you know, he never tried to change me. And then we had a new coach step in and everything changed. We were weighed Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. We were given a goal weight. We were, you know, told we couldn't have peanut MMs. And yeah, it was a unique situation. So I forego my senior, my last year at, you know, at running for the team. So I could, you know, train for the Olympic trials. And it all worked out. That coach is no longer, you know, at Michigan and um those situations no longer exist the coaching there now is phenomenal um mcguire mike mcguire has been there for over 35 years and he is just the best coach you know in my opinion so um but when i was there there was a there was a transition from red simmons to the next coach that didn't work for me yeah
0: so can uh, we can we unpack that for a minute because that is something that's really important um uh, and a topic that a lot of coaches and runners have talked about as of late, and that is what a difference uh, proper coaching and proper nutrition can make in terms of injury prevention. You mentioned that you, um, when you were faced with, for lack of a better word, a crappy coach who focused too much on weight, you were able to sort of self-regulate and say, I'm out, I'm going to focus on the trials. But did you know to do that because you realized that he was pushed? running you into the ground and potentially would cause injury, or was it more of a decision, I don't like the way you coach and I'm out?
2: It was both. And actually it was a female coach. And she gave me the ideal weight of 123. When I started at Michigan running, when I was running I was 156. And I thought I was beautiful. I was, I was like, I loved my body. I thought, you know, I loved my muscles. I loved, you know, just the way I felt. And then in walks this coach who says, gives me an assigned weight. She gave all the girls an assigned weight. And so I thought, okay, you know, I tried to buy on, in. I wanted to be respectful. I got to 126 and I lost my menstrual cycle and I got a stress fracture. And I'm thinking, I, you know, I'm taking health and wellness classes at Michigan, I'm reading about all the things that you're not supposed to do. And and I'm like, this is wrong. This is totally wrong. And so I I refused to get that low in my weight. I kept what I thought was a healthy weight. And then my senior year, when it was also uh, an Olympic year, 1984, I thought, no, I would much rather, you know, train for the Olympic trials in the sport of marathon. It was the first marathon ever for women in the US or in the world that it was a part of the Olympic games. And so I, you know, I just turned in my scholarship again and now I'm self-funding again, my my final year at Michigan, but it all worked out. The um, Kellogg Corporation came, it stepped in, paid my tuition, paid my my housing and, um, you know, helped me self-fund that last year at Michigan so I could graduate. And, you know, it, it all worked out. I almost made the Olympic team. I actually made the team as an alternate, I got fourth. And um, then came back the following spring in one Boston so it was like the beginning of just a long love affair with runny and I remember asking my parents after I graduated I said, can you give me a year, give me a year to, to pursue you know, being a professional runner. And because I got a, a degree in teaching and and a degree in exercise science. And I mean, right out of college, I probably could have gotten a teaching degree for about $18,000 a year. And they're like, okay, but you have to, you know, you have to fund yourself. We can't, we can't help you. And I go, I realized that. So a week after graduation, I found a 10 K ran the 10 K won a thousand dollars. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Good start. <laughs> that's, like, that's like Okay. That's a whole month worth of food and rent right there in one race. And I'm like, kind of like this. So then I, then I signed up for grandma's marathon and came in second and qualified for the Olympic trials. And the rest is history. I mean, I just, I got a I got a contract with Saucony, you know, they paid me a, you know, a, you know, a monthly stipend. And then I started, you know, running races, 15 Ks, 10 milers, marathons. And that first year I made over $40,000 And that was compared to what I would have made as, you know, like $18,000 as a, as a teacher. And you're like, oh honey, you just keep going. You just, (laughs) and so, you know, 16 years later, I spent 16 years as a professional athlete and, um, just had an amazing journey of meeting fabulous people and traveling the world. And, uh, yeah, so, you know, let's go go back a
1: little bit, Lisa, I want to, I want to understand what, um, you know, how your kind of transition from running cross country and track in college to the marathon? I mean, that's a big, first of all, young to run a marathon. Um, There's a level of maturity that's required to run a marathon. Like what, what took you from, from, you know, cross country and track to like, I want to run a marathon and not only do I want to run a marathon, I want to qualify for the Olympics.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I was actually 22 when I ran grandma's and I was 23 when I won Boston. So that's a very good question because they People think well wow that's a big jump well if you go back and historically look we had no other choices we had the 3k or the marathon the the 10k wasn't even in that in that olympics in 1984. so what happened was is you know years and you know decades ago it was felt that running distances for women was harmful quote your uterus will fall out you know, you know, They, I think there was an 800 meter race where the women tried so hard, they fell to the track and they're laying on the track and, you know, some male organizi- organizers saw that and felt that we were doing harm to ourselves. Well, research shows that's not the case. And through time and evolution and um, progression, women are now able to run the exact same events as men, except for race walking. So um, that's a huge source of contention, I think, for for people to know that the men race 50K and the women race 20K instead of to equalize it, they just took it out. So there's no more men's 50K, there's no more race walking in the Olympics, so. Anyway, um, back to, yeah, so I had, I either had the 3K or I could run the marathon and I'm like, I'm a 10K runner in college and I knew I wasn't gonna dip down and have any chance of qualifying in a 3K. So I, I um, mileaged up and, had a great coach at this time. His name is Ron Warhurst. He was at Michigan. He was the men's coach. And when I left the women's coach there, he just took me under his wing. He he taught me the paincake of training and how to go beyond what we thought was good into that next level. And that's what Warhurst is able to do. He's able to take a- athletes to the next level by helping them understand the pain cake. And so he was there. Oh. So before we, we continue with that, could
0: you share with our listeners, uh, some of that wisdom as to how to, um, hang out in the pain cave?
2: (laughs) It's, it's having an app or a coach there, not allowing you to surrender. It's that positive, like, come on, you got this. And then it's that ultimate wanting to like, please them and wanting to show them that you can do it. And so there's two ways of coaching you can yell and be negative and you know unsupportive and then you can be like I believe in you and you got this and you know and just that firm belief that he gave me that in the middle of a workout I can still hear him shouting at me uh positive affirmations like that was your best quarter come on you got this next one don't give in come on give it up give it to me you know and just this constant like total belief and you know and then would call me a pinhead you know he gave he gives his little runners nicknames but you know lovingly nicknames and so for him i was pinhead and i don't know what it meant but it was his adoration to me and I thought i knew he called me a pinhead it was a good (laughs) thing
0: so so really it's about i mean based on what you just shared in terms of the pain cave really it's about being positive. And if one doesn't have the luxury of having a coach yelling things at you that are positive, certainly we can yell at ourselves and believe in ourselves and 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 give those positive affirmations to ourselves, which we would imagine you had to do a lot too in your training, um, especially on those long runs when he might not have been by your side
2: the whole time. Exactly. So there's that the, this part of the brain that keeps telling you, come on, you got this, you got this. And you listen to this side of the brain but there's always this part of the brain that says, Oh, it hurts, man. You know, I, I slow down. It's okay. You'll be fine. So it's the one brain telling the other brain to shut up. And, and so that's what Ronnie told me. He told me to tune out the negativity tune out the I want to quit tune out the, you know, the, the part of you that wants to stop and just focus on one more. Give me one more. Just give me one more. And then once you give him, give him one more, he's like, okay, you got another one too, you know? So there's this game that he plays within each of the workouts that, you know, I don't think you can teach that. I think even now, Ron is, he's, you know, closing in on 80 and he's coaching Hobbs Kessler and Nick Willis and Mason Perlick, who, you know, are all, you know, Olympic athletes. So, you know, he's still out there changing the game for people and, He's just a remarkable coach who probably does not get enough um, accolades.
1: That's great, and that's a big testament to coaching and having somebody who who can help you kind of figure that out how to, how to have that side of your brain brain take over. So, kind of speaking about um, you know that mental approach, tell us tell us a little bit. Go back to to Grandma's Marathon in in 1984. And um, was that your
2: first marathon that you did? So you qualified. I ran 235. Um, Oh my gosh. I was, you know, it was, I had done some long runs. I think I did two 20 milers. That was it leading up. But NCAAs were two weeks before. So um, NCAAs were two weeks before. And I was running, you know, 10K. And I thought, okay, Ramus is coming up, I might as well run it. And that was it. I went and ran and, I, and then, you know, that was when, you know, the whole issue with the coach at Michigan kind of happened and I didn't continue to run for them, but I still lived in Ann Arbor and still trained with the men's coach. But um, during the race, everything was going really well. You know, I was staying, you know, hydrated, But what happened was I got the worst blisters. You know, I I think I wore cotton socks. It wasn't the shoe. It was the sock, hundred percent cotton sock. It was humid and they got wet. And then there was just this horrible friction that happened. And, you know, the last, the last four miles, you know, it was like the baton death march. It was, it was a struggle, but, you know, I made it and I figured, well, that's fixable. And, uh, you know, And sure enough, you know, the the grandma's, you know, marathon kind of cemented me as in my mindset that I was going to be a marathoner. And when,
1: how long after that was the Olympic trial marathon? How long after that?
2: Grandma's is June and the trials were in May. Okay. And did you do anything
1: specific then to prepare? I mean, what did you do to change your training? You said you had done 220 miles. What did you do? You know, did you rely on your coach? What did you do to prepare for the for the trials?
2: Yeah, I just started, you know, upping my mileage, you know, slowly, you know, each week and adding more long runs. And, you know, just doing the, doing the training. I threw in a couple races. They were shorter races. They weren't, you know, they were more like 10Ks and 15Ks. 15 um, K's were very popular back then I don't know why but they were the half marathons really didn't exist you had, you know, 15 kilometers and, and so I ran, you know, pre, you know, pre trials races to kind of test my fitness but because I was so new I knew I had to like create a base I knew I had to kind of like, um, get prepared to do well. And, you know, I thought I did I thought I, pre- I, I prepared the best I could. but back then i mean there there was water there wasn't there weren't sports drinks there weren't gels there weren't there wasn't anything and so what was happening with me being a larger runner you know about 20 miles i was hitting the wall and i couldn't figure it out and you know in hindsight what we know now and what i know now it was just fuel it was total fuel i lacked the fuel in the latest stages of the marathon and and, uh, it wasn't until um, Chicago Marathon a couple years ago that I totally dialed into the right fueling pattern and it played out really well. But um, yeah, so the trials came and I was in third place for 25 miles. And it's like, oh, 25 miles, third place. I was an Olympian for 25 miles. And then Julius Rodin just comes zipping by, and you know, I'm like, I had nothing. I had nothing. And, um, you know, at the time I was young, it was my second marathon. I'm like, ah, that's not bad. I still got, you know, decades ahead of me. And
1: yeah. Fourth place after- in your first trials marathon. I mean, I was going to say, did you kind of expect to place that high
2: when you went in? Did you feel like you um, were in a place to, to do that? Well, I was, I had, I had race number 13. So, either you know, that was a curse or an omen. I don't know, but, um, I'd gone in ranked 13th and, you know, to come out fourth. I, I'm, I'm always, my glass is half full. My glass is never half empty. And so I walked away going, you know, almost made it, almost made it, you know? And I thought, okay, what am I going to do next? And so it was then I'm like, okay, I'm going to run Boston, let's run Boston. And, and so, so that kind of happened and played out really well. And, you know, just started my career as a professional athlete.
0: So you won the Boston marathon and, um, It seems like this is kind of the pattern of your life is that um, when one door closes, another opens. Um, So it just really, I think it's a testament to how you think because there are so many people and we hear it a lot. We hear from a lot of professional athletes, particularly this year with the Olympics um, being postponed. Fourth place for a lot of athletes looking for a spot would be devastating. And in your case, it sounds like it was a little disappointing, but you then just pivoted. And you did that before that word was trendy and you <laughs> went and ran the Boston Marathon and won. So because this is a Boston focused podcast, talk to us and tell us your story and what it was like and why you're at it. Any any tips or observations that you specifically have about Boston that you would like to share with our listeners, many of whom will be running this um, sure. in a few months. Yeah.
2: So so Boston, um, I was living in Boston at the time. I had signed a contract with Saucony, and you know they're they're based out of Peabody, and I rented a house on the North Shore in in Marblehead, and you know it was just like living the dream. I was in like the atmosphere, you know, in Boston is like no other, and back then especially so. So I was, you know, Dave McGilvery, who is is now the race director of the Boston Marathon. He was my my shoe contract um, advisor for Saucony, so he worked for Saucony. And so he was kind of like my boss. And Love it!
0: What a great boss to have. He's awesome. Know.
2: So Dave was still running quite a bit back then. And um, funny story, and here's the funny story I was telling you about earlier. He was hired by WBZ, the the TV station. I think I don't. I think they're NBC affiliate in Boston to run alongside me, wearing a microphone that was hooked to his ball cap. So he could talk to like Bob LaBelle, I think was the the anchor at the time and give them updates on where the woman was, because back then they did not have a vehicle on the lead women. You know, there was no like press car for women. we were just, oh, you might catch a glimpse of a woman running by a stationary camera. So they were trying to be innovative and Dave was hired to run with me. Well, he lasted about eight miles. (laughs) He couldn't keep up, so I tell I tell people, yes, Dave. He he was fired from his first job with me because he couldn't keep up. You know, he uh, and
0: that says a lot about you, Lisa, because Dave is a phenomenal runner. So the fact that he couldn't keep up with you for uh, yeah. over eight miles says a lot about how fast you were going.
2: Yes, but the problem was from that on there were no updates on how the women were doing, and and so. It's kind of he
0: was a failure. He failed. <laughs> well, I'm sure that was a job that he was happy to get fired from because that meant you were yeah. having a really successful race. So he, you drop him at mile eight, and uh, take us through the last. If you, if you can recall, I know it was a while ago, but it was your first Boston and you won. So hopefully you remember. Take us through the last half and and kind of what you learned from that and what tips, if any, you have for people.
2: Sure. Well, can I let me take you through the morning. Oh,
0: if, if that's okay, I'm going to take you. Th-
2: Absolutely, because it was a unique morning. I think it was the second hottest Boston in history. Yeah. At the time, it was the first hottest Boston. So back then, there were not, you know, John Hancock hadn't gotten involved yet, and so there weren't elite athlete hotels and elite athlete, um, you know, hospitality. We were really on our own, and so I had a homestay in Hopkinton. And the night before I was dropped off at this very kind family with my race kit and anything I wanted to leave there. I I brought a disposable toothbrush, toothpaste, pajamas, and sweatpants. And I slept in their basement. And when I woke up, I was like on the bed, like, oh my God, it's so hot. The windows weren't open. I was dying. And so I got up and the family was already gone. So I'm in the house all by myself. I made myself a cup of coffee and some toast and, and uh, you know, then it came time because back then the race started at noon, high noon. And the sun was up high, it was hot. I had my, all I had on was my singlet, my shorts, and I carried with me, you know, some water. And that was how I walked from their house in Hopkinton to the start of the, the race. And it was like, we were, we were pilgrim, you know, it was like pilgrims, just walking and it was quiet. People were kind of nervous and um, it was just a real eerie feeling. And I get to the start and there was a field where we were able to like kind of sit and stretch and, and just get ready for, for the race itself and there was just this kind of feeling of camaraderie it probably i I can only imagine what it feels like when one is going to war where there we're all fellows together and um and so there was just this kind of eerie feeling of what are we about to do and i just remember feeling at peace with the people around me and feeling like we're about to do something pretty amazing and you know gun goes off and it's hot i just remember the sun i got so sunburned that day when i got home after the race and took my singlet off my back is just scorched you know it's not supposed to be close to 80 degrees you know in april and i had to kind of like manage manage my hydration manage my effort, and not get too excited because you know, um, it's downhill as we know, predominantly in the first half. And so you kind of got lulled into like, you know, this turnover and this pace and this um, you know, illusion of wow, I'm gonna run a huge PR. And then you know, you hit Storo Drive around mile 17 and whoop, everything just feels like it's up. I mean, it's relentless. And and so at that point, you know, my Ron was there yelling at me you know, in a positive way. When I say, yeah, he was like encouraging Ronnie. So he's there and he's like, you know, cheering for me. And, and uh, you know, then it just became, you know one mile at a time looking for the next water station, seeking out, you know, any kind of fuel. Again, gels did not exist. There were were people along the race course that would have orange slices and I remember at one point just grabbing an orange slice and sucking on it just for some kind of fuel. Gatorade didn't exist. Um, We were pretty much on our own. And through the people along the the course who lined it, they would reach out with stuff like uh, like a Coke, like a Coca-Cola. And I remember one time grabbing a cup of Coke and just trying to get any kind of sugar that I could. And and, you know, so for me, it was helped me stay aware because I was always looking for the next opportunity and it made the miles click off faster. And so, you know, clicking off the miles um, went went quicker when I was, found myself focusing on the next fuel source and then you know when we get to Wellesley back then they didn't have the, the security fencing that kept people off the road, and so the women just came totally in and made a cheer tunnel, very much like you do for little kids after a soccer game. You know, the parents all stand on the side of the field and they put their hands over their head and they create a tunnel that the kids run through. Well, the women of Wellesley did that and they created this cheer tunnel and it was deafening, deafening. It was like, holy cow. Um, And so I ran through this tunnel and they were slapping me on the butt and you know, cheering and, you know, just totally reckless abandon it, you know, enthusiasm during that section. And, you know, my heart rate's racing. I'm, you know, I'm feeling like I used a little too much energy during that section just because I was so excited. You know, the women made it so thrilling to be the first women to come, woman to come through, through Wellesley. So I'll never forget that. That's probably the most chilling moment of the race, even more so than crossing the finish line. I was dead by then. I was like, holy cow, get me to the finish line. But when coming through Wellesley, it was, it was um, very memorable.
1: So did you know, I mean, did you know how much of a lead you had? Did you know were there other women around you? Did you what, what was your sense of where you were in the race and what you had to do to get to that finish and win that race?
2: Yeah, it was it, from the gun, I think it was my race to win because a lot of women chose not to run Boston that year. We were in the midst of having prize money become legitimate and Boston was still not paying prize money. And so as a as a statement to the to the future of the sport, women and men decided to not run Boston so that they could come back, you know, either and run, you know, Chicago or New York or London and actually have legitimate prize money on the table so that they knew when they crossed the finish line, they won X number of dollars versus you know some people were invited to races and they were getting appearance money under the table and they were getting you know we wanted to legitimize the sport as a professional sport and and so i knew going into boston that i was the favorite and but i also knew it was boston and it would it would it would make a difference in my running career and having i lived there at the time I had a very nice bonus with my shoe company to help you know if I won, I would get that bonus, so you know for me it was like this just makes sense, and I understand and respect. The the decision of other runners not to participate in Boston that year, but it became a good story because John Hancock then came in and became you know a lifelong sponsor of the event and elevated it to you know world class level and has made such a difference. So, um, I knew going in, I was going to be the one to beat, but it's a marathon and you, you can never count on how your body's going to react. And you need to be
1: the especially same. in that weather and those temperatures.
2: Oh, it's so hot. And, uh, you know, I, I walked away with the wind, thankfully I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for you know, the the organizers um at the time for you know believing in me and in welcoming you making me feel welcome so um and then i you know i came back years later and, and ran it several more times or attempted to so you know it's I was oh this year 2020 I trained to run Boston as my 35th anniversary and so I'm like okay this is not gonna be easy so I started training you know back in you know 2019 and late summer of 2019 I'm like okay I'm gonna give myself six months I'm gonna get in shape and I was doing great I did my 20 minors three weeks before the marathon they canceled you know as we know and I'm like great oh I did all that training so then they came back and said okay we're gonna postpone it till September like, okay so I did just the bare minimum and then I started ramping it up heavy, heavily again in July and then they canceled again. So I trained for two marathons last year and didn't get to run one. And I'm like, I'm 60. It's like, this is not easy for me. I'm not, you know, I have a career. I've got kids. I've got grandkids. I have a husband. I have a lovely life. It's busy. I like to run, Like I'll run a half marathon on down, but to train for full at this time, you know, my life, I had to really think about
0: it. (laughs) Well, Lisa, first of all, um, just incredible that you are running healthy as long as you have we know so many runners who wouldn't even be able to train and given a lot of people they hit the pinnacle and then they sustain a lot of injuries so it's a real testament to how you've treated your body over the years secondly your story we have a feeling that so many of our listeners are nodding along so many people like you trained twice for this race and never got to run it so our question for you is would are you considering coming back uh, in 2022 to do it, or is this is this something that you decided to put to bed for now?
2: Well, if the organizers invited me and said this will be, you know, your celebration year because you missed out on yours, I would, because I, you know, I love the organization, and so every five years they bring previous winners back to celebrate. So every five years you have got a group of you know athletes you know starting from you know like the 1950s all the way you know people that are still alive um all the way till current times and last in 2020 that was my year that was my 5 year anniversary and so Got i went it. back and run you know and celebrate you know memory lane all of that um and so 2021 i understand it's a very limited field they're still trying to get through covid but if they want to invite the 2020 runners who missed their celebration year for 2022.
0: I'll do it. All right, so everyone, let's uh let's all contact the BAA and get Lisa on the list so she can right. actually have her her 35th anniversary properly honored in 2022. Uh there there's the call right there and and we'll do what we can to support this because you deserve recognition for sure. We love
2: it. Love it.
1: Lisa, which other Boston do you went back? You did go back, you said, to run or attempt to run Boston. So what what did you what were your subsequent Boston um, you know, what did you do after after
2: 1985? Well, 89, um, I was really fit. 1989, I, I had just won Chicago in 88 and set a couple of American records in other distances, the 15k and the five mile, and you know, I was just on top of my game. And um, so I came back to run. Boston in 1989 and Ingrid Christensen was the favorite. And me, I had gotten in, into like this hot streak and gun goes off. And I thought, I'm just going to put it all on the line. And um, I ended up finishing fourth, but man, it was a struggle. I, it was, you know, I went out too fast. You know, rookie mistake, it's Boston. You know, fly- I came through the half in like 111 and i was 120 the second half <laughs> so it was like
1: well, good lesson that we 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 preach to all of our runners that are running boston and we've talked about a lot on this podcast Is especially the boston course is really um just conducive to going out a little too fast because of the elevation so it's easy to do that but take it from us take it from you that's you know never yes. the never the best strategy so good you know good lesson to learn but you were
0: still only a couple of minutes off your PR. For, I mean, it wasn't like you bonked yeah. really. You just yeah. went like a little slower the second half. You did really yeah. well.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I came back the next year to run it again. And um, I flew it, I was living in Seattle. And so there's a three hour time zone change. So I flew in the next morning at 7 a.m., there was like a press conference, or the press conference was at 10 which for my biological body at the time was like seven. So I got up early to go for a run and I came over, um, it was Storow Drive, which is what I came over. I think I, I said Storow Drive during race, but that was Route 28. So I came over Storow Drive from running around um, the river and there's this footpath, I came over and there's this big white truck parked so I couldn't see. And so I ran into the alley and there was a car just zipping down the road and I got hit by a car. No. Hit by a car, went up and over, ended up, broke my tailbone, had many abrasions. And so I'm laying on the ground and the, the driver, you know, Billy was distraught. And the first person that comes who sees me lying on the ground was Joan Benoit Sanderson. So Joni comes over. No. And she, oh my god so joni's able to help you know kind of stay with me and somebody calls an ambulance and i get taken to the hospital and um my race definitely was over (laughs) so that was my other boston experience and um yeah so you know it's a love it's a love hate relationship with boston in a way because i've i've had such great experiences and then there's the you know I got hit by a car.
0: okay so that's even more reason why we need a redo with uh, celebrating your Boston because the last time you were in Boston to and intending to run Boston was that incident there wasn't a, a Boston after that.
2: I did um, a Boston with my husband and our oldest daughter but we ran okay. four hours. so got it family affair on one in 2010 as one of my anniversary celebrations, but that was my last fast Boston.
0: All right,
1: Lisa, right? Lisa Levin, we have a project. <laughs> Getting Lisa back into, back to Boston. Yes. Yeah, we would, we would love to see you there. You definitely, um uh you know, you definitely deserve to go back and have a, have another really good experience in Boston. And like Julie said, you know, it's, it's a testament to just your, your athleticism and also the, your care of your body and what you've you know done over the years to be able to still be able to run and train, train for marathons. So that's, you know, that's always our goals. We always say our goals for ourselves and for our runners is to be able to run the rest of our lives. Cause it, it makes us so happy. I have a quick question. just kind of off the side. Do you still swim at all?
2: I do. I still swim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have, a, we have a membership to a place that has a really nice pool and you know um, I run more than I swim. Um, but you know, I still swim, I still get on my bike, um, you know, Do
1: triathlons Any tri- have you ever done triathlon? <laughs> You'd be a great triathlete.
2: Okay. So funny, funny story. So the year 2000, right. The Olympics is now offering the triathlon first time as a metal sport. So I'm, I'm first time marathon in 1984. And then in, in the year 2000, first time triathlon. So I'm like, I got this, I got this. I can swim. I can, I can run, you know, so I picked up the bike and I moved myself to Colorado Springs and became a member of the training center here to get coaching for the Olympic trials. And sure enough, had a great year, finished fourth at U S nationals. My first year as a pro triathlete.
0: Okay. What's up with you in the number four, this is crazy.
1: we actually so, have a friend here. We have a friend here. Always places fourth in his age group. It's kind of, you know, kind of similar. We joke about it, but yeah.
2: Yeah. So I think, okay, this is great. So I'm going to train all winter and embrace my weakness, which is cycling. So I, I get a road, I get a mountain bike because um, it's winter in Colorado. You can't really be on your road bike. So I thought I'm going to spend the whole winter just working on, you know, bike handling skills and get you know proficient on the bike. And I kid you not the first bike session I had with my coach, I crashed. And in doing so, I dislocated my elbow. And you can't swim with the dislocated elbow and you can't bike, you know, and and be on the handlebars. And it hurt to run. So I'm like taking three weeks off. And about six weeks later, I'm just not feeling right. Something's not right. So I, you know, it dawned on me, I hadn't had a cycle, so did a little EPT test and found out that my husband and I were expecting a baby. So, um, which was great. I was 37 years old. It was, you know, it was perfect. Lisa, I have to just interrupt
1: you really quick and tell you that's actually my story of my first marathon uh, triathlon. I was always a runner and I liked to cycle and I, picked up swimming and decided to do a triathlon. And I was in the middle of training when I found out I was pregnant with my third child. And so I had to put it off for, for another year. So very similar, you can't you cannot you ride your bike when you're like eight months pregnant, not not very safe to do that.
2: No, so, you know, we welcomed our daughter, Katie. And, um, you know, then we welcomed the son when I was 40. I was actually training for an Ironman when I got pregnant with him. Like, I don't know, I should just stop training because otherwise I'll keep having children. So um, Katie is now, she just turned professional, and um, she graduated from Washington. She started out at Oregon, transferred to University of Washington when her coach made the move, and she just moved to Boulder, so she's back in Colorado, and she's training with Team Boss, which is Emma Coburn's professional group. So she's now living the dream, and um, I get to live through her and her her races and she's racing this weekend in Memphis. So, you know, I'll be like all excited for her.
0: She had an awesome performance at the Olympic trials. Was that, um, did she recently switch over to team boss? Was it um, before the trials or after that she made the decision to go with uh, Joe Bossard's team?
2: She made it afterwards, she was invited and she was training with, you know, Washington. She had, so her spring, God bless her, she she had um, Pac-12s She had regionals, she had NCAAs, and they all had prelims and finals. So she's running the prelim and the final of the steeple in all of these events. So it was in five weeks in a row, Pac-12, regionals, NCAAs, and um, the Olympic trials. And so her very first steeple was April of this year at the Stanford invite. And it was so cute. She's like, yeah, I really like that. It's kind of like me with the marathon. Let's just give it a go. I really liked it. And so, how
0: what a great role, role model you've been for Katie, though, because you've certainly shown that you can take risks and have great rewards to for her first steeple to be in April and then compete in the trials and the event in June. That's incredible.
2: Yeah, so she's it's almost like she's been preparing herself her whole life because she's been a soccer player. And, you know, but as a little girl, if there was ever like a parking post, you know she would hopscotch over it. You know, if there's everything in me sticking up, she would leap over it. She's just been this kid who has just leapt and run and jumped her whole life. So she played basketball, she played soccer, she Irish danced. Okay. So when she did her first steeple, it didn't, the the barriers did not, she wasn't afraid of them. And being 5'11", you know, she's very tall. um, You know, it was like, hey, this, this kind of makes sense. So she's just, you know, living the dream right now and pursuing her master's in exercise science and, you know, training with the professional group out of, out of Boulder. So
1: as a parent now of a, of an athlete and a competitive athlete, what, what advice do you have for parents of, of athletes, particularly female athletes now, you know, looking back on your own career and your own collegiate yeah. experience and you know what, what's your advice for parents of, of kids, teens who are, you know, pursuing these athletic pursuits.
2: Back off, back off, Let her find her own way, Let him. Or your, you know, we are such, we're parents who want the best. And sometimes what we say and what they hear are totally disconnected. So when I learned to stop coaching and to stop being that parent who tried to provide advice, even though it was loving advice, our relationship got stronger and stronger. And so now she comes to me. So she'll say, mom, check out my workout. Look what I just did. And all I have to say is, wow, that was amazing. You know, instead of micromanaging her workouts, micromanaging her training, all I can be now is a cheerleader and not someone who tries to critique or change. She's, she's on her way. And we as parents of of outliers. Parents who have kids who are phenomenal, the best thing we can do is just to shut up. <laughs> just let them find their way. Let them get, you know, next to coaches and, and, and establish coaching relationships that allow them to flourish. And we just need to make sure that they're fed, they have, you know, money in their pocket when they need it, and that, that they know they're loved. Unconditional, and it's not based on the next performance and we're there for a hug if they have a, a performance that you know they struggled with so hugs and money and food
0: <laughs> that, it, that's a that's such great advice it resonates so much um because it's not just advice for athletics it's advice for watching your child try something new or, or try to improve on something, whatever that skill is, whether they're at an outlier elite level or not, it's being the pillow that they can land on the soft landing while they try really hard at something that might be challenging for them.
1: Right. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, so you're also, I mean, this, this is a huge part of your life, and I'm sorry, we're touching on it so late in the interview, but you are also a, a tremendous coach and you, you are the coach of a, a youth uh, running group called cocapelli can you talk a little bit about what cocapelli is and what your coaching philosophy is
2: yeah it started when katie was in third grade she just loved to run in their words we i just like there's nothing here for kids there's the local 5k but that's too far for you know nine-year-old so we started the cocapelli trail running series a free race series of races that were based on um, school grade. So someone in kindergarten ran a half mile. And then by the time they got to eighth grade, they would run 1.75 miles. And so we had these beautiful trails that we line the kids up and they'd get to run and they would get a t-shirt and they would get everything that mom and dad got at races. They'd get the snack, they'd get the race number, they'd get the official timing, they'd get the t-shirt. And so what we wanted to do was provide opportunities for little kids to fall in love with the sport and make it appropriate for them and not just a tag along to a mom and dad's race. And, and so we did that. We did that. I did that for 13 years. And what happened was is once the race series was over, people were like, well, is there anything else we can do? Is there, are there any more races? Are there any training programs? And I'm like, uh, Sure. <laughs> so I started the Coca Racing Team, very much like a soccer team, a basketball team, volleyball. We're sanctioned by USA Track and Field. We're sanctioned by AAU, and so we're legitimate. We take these kids, we train them, they get their uniforms, we go to races, and it has evolved into you know just this program here in Colorado, and we attract runners from all over. We're we're a one stop shop for youth running. We do. Coaching, cross country races, track races, um, camps. I just finished three weeks of high altitude camps up in Breckenridge, and um, and then we help with recruiting process for kids who are then, you know, leaving, you know, aging out of the program, going into, you know, college. So we we're re, we we resources, we had scholarships, we kind of do everything for the kid who wants to be a runner.
0: And how does that fit in with kids who are on high school cross-country teams? Is this sort of a supplement to their high school cross-country program, or do you work with those coaches in tandem?
2: Well, both. Um, we, we provide coaching in the off-season. So once the season is over, the high school kids, they just launch right into us after a small break. Um, because there, you know, you can't, not all high school coaches are trained to be high school running coaches. I mean they could be the you know the science teacher or you know the history teacher and they have great intentions but it's hard when you have 75 kids show up at a high school and you have an outlier you what happens was is the outlier just kind of gets reduced. And so people, you know parents and programs seek out higher level coaching in the off season. So we are the off season provider. And last year doing during COVID, I had the luxury of working with these kids all year round, uninterrupted. And so we saw huge performance improvements. And a lot of our kids, you know, you know, freshmen running 453 in the mile, you know, in high school, you know, juniors and seniors setting records because we provided opportunity. We did time trials, we did videos that we could send to college coaches for recruiting purposes. We we made it so their life felt uninterrupted. And um, it was so much fun, it was a lot of hard work, because we could only train in pods of 10. And we had 145 kids in the program, I have seven coaches that work for me. And so we just did our best to keep these kids whole, get them out of their bedroom off their, you know, their devices and outside feeling like I matter. And so last year was it was great. It was the best year of my coaching life because I was able to work with kids and to feel like we mattered, We made a difference. So, yeah, we work with high school kids. Um, we have our own little national letter of, of intent signing day. So as a club, when all the kids decide where they're going to go to college, we we celebrate them and we have cake. And, you know, we we, uh, you know, just glorify them as they go on their way to the next level.
0: And do you um, work closely with a dietitian on your team, given the age group of these kids and that you're, you're seeing kids basically grow in front of your eyes and also at the same time trying to fuel their bodies. And there's a lot of tricky elements to that obviously for, for boys, but mostly for girls. And, and how do you handle that um, to allow them to reach their fullest potential?
2: That's a great question. Absolutely. We have sports psychologists that I refer to. I have a a dietitian, not a nutritionist, but she is truly a dietitian that I, and she's an athlete. She's amazing. So we refer all our athletes to to her when when they need, you know, just, you know, support. We work with the Hibble Sports Performance Center. So if I see a muscle imbalance or kids need, you know, some kids, they grow two inches overnight. And the muscle development, ligament and tendon development, isn't at the same rate. And so there's discrepancies and imbalances. So we work with the Sports Performance Center. So I've been able to, over the years, is to develop these relationships with the best. We have the best massage therapist, the best physical therapist. And so, you know, I can just call them up and say, hey, I got an athlete, and they get them right in. And so it's just nice to have you know i can lay awake i can go to bed at night knowing that my athletes in all areas are going to have you know comprehensive coverage for them even even the psychological piece which was tough for a lot of kids um, who missed out on their senior year of high school in sports and then spent their freshman year in college you know locked in the dorm room you know i see it i'm first line of of the mental struggles that our kids have gone through and yet you would never know it because they remain silent and so I want to be that person for them that they can they can they can cry on they can complain to they can you know just be sad with and be have it be okay that's so
1: important both of us are parents of, of teens too. And we've seen, you know, what the last year and a half, the impact that it's had on our kids and also the impact having sports or athletics, to activities to, to still um, be committed to and engaging, like you said, get them out of the house and off their electronics and away from the zoom screen. That's been so important. So um, Lisa, you, you are amazing. We feel like we've known you for, we feel like we can relate so well to you and we've known you for so long. and um, You know, just, we really, I know I can speak for Julie too, as a, as an athlete, as a coach, as a mom, like we just admire everything that you've done and the longevity of of your, of your careers as as all of those. And, and that's, you know, like I said, something we always strive for is that we want to be able to run and do what we love throughout Mm -hmm. our lives and pass that along to, to the next generation, which is what you're doing and and the confidence that it brings and um, you know, just everything good that comes with um, whatever your, your interest is, whether it's swimming or running or cycling or triathlon. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's just admirable to us that, you know, you started out, focused on the Olympics for swimming. And when that didn't work out, you, know, you look at the Olympics for running. And when that didn't work out, you won Boston. When that didn't work out, you looked at Olympics for triathlon, you know, and you just keep looking for what, um, you know, what can um, keep you motivated. And yeah. um, that is really inspiring to us. And we know it's going to be inspiring to our listeners. So we are going to, we're going to put in a big push for you to get invited to Boston because we would love <laughs> love to see you in Boston and um, and day. see you get to have a yeah, another Talk. another chance yeah. to cross that line and uh, you know cross that line. Uh, start out in Hopkinton, cross the line on Boylston Street. Um, so we hope that we will get a chance to meet you in person. Uh, but in the meantime, we really appreciate the time you've spent with us, sharing all of your inspirational words and stories.
2: Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure.
1: Great. Well, take care. Run strong, and we'll hope to see you in Boston one day. Okay. All right. Bye. Y'all. So much.
0: Bye. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Erin Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.